Webster's Dictionary defines compliance as the action or fact of complying with a wish or command. This is the Compliance Guy. The Compliance Guy. As a healthcare provider or healthcare professional, navigating the muddy waters of compliance can get tricky. And that's why we're here. Helping you mitigate risk while increasing your profitability. This is the Compliance Guy. Now, here's your host, Sean Weiss. All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of Hashtag Terry Tuesday on the Compliance Guy. It is June 28th of the great year 2022, and I get to, as always, welcome my very good friend Terry Fletcher to the show. Good morning, Terry. Good morning. How are you doing this morning? Well, I am back in the saddle, possibly a blazing saddle. Uh-huh, if anybody's uh-huh. seen that movie, you just aged yourself. Um, I please, all <laughs> you, you have did. to do is take one look at me and know I'm old. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, uh, you know, I'm back in my studio this week, which is um, really nice because uh, a couple of episodes that were done last week were done from the hotel, and you know, the audio quality wasn't the best, but you could, I mean, we make it work, it was yeah. fine. Yeah, and we made it work, but it, it was more important to get the episodes out and to get, more importantly, the content out. And right. But last week was a fascinating week for me. And, you know, it was really funny for um, all of our listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in and logging on and just hanging out with Terry and I for a little while. Um, and we were talking prior to getting the show started. And it's going to be interesting because we got to see whether or not Terry and I are on the same page when it comes to auditing evaluation and management services pre 2021. So last week, yeah. So last week um, I was in Detroit for a federal criminal trial, huge trial, five defendants um, case dates back to an arrest of one of the physicians in 2018, who's been in jail since then. Um, Ron Chapman of Chapman Law Group will most likely be coming on the program at some time next week. Uh, And we're going to really talk about this case because it's just such an unbelievable case. But I want to talk a little bit about this case because this is the second case in a row. This is the second federal criminal trial in a row in the last year where the FBI, the Office of the Inspector General, and the prosecutors got it wrong. And I know that I have friends who are retired OIG agents, retired FBI agents. I have folks who I am very friendly with who are current prosecutors, and they're probably going, Sean, what are you saying? Listen, in these two cases, the folks that were the supposed experts of this stuff, the prosecutors in this in these two cases, they got it all wrong. And we're going to explain that to you as we get started on this this program today. So here let me kind of set the scenario for you. <clears throat> Evaluation and management services, okay? These services, Terry, I think you would agree with me. They are low-hanging fruit, which is why every insurance company audits them. They are low-hanging fruit 
So when there is an escalation of a case to a governmental entity and a prosecutor determines that there's enough there there to proceed, to pursue an indictment or to charge somebody, that, you know, they do it because E&M services are highly subjective and they're very low-hanging fruit. Would you agree with me on that point? I would. I would also mention, and you actually just said it, is that there's so much subjectivity, meaning that opinion on how something was documented and if it falls into a certain category. And um, I'm noticing in the legal work that I've done, being an expert witness or being involved in depositions, is that many of the opposing, many of the people on the opposing side, they don't, they mix up their rules and they don't understand the difference between the rules that were in play before 2021 and the rules that are in play now. And let's face it, if it's now coming to a legal conclusion or a battle, I guess, if you will, it's typically prior to 2021. And they're they're not understanding how the rules worked back then. And the fact that the 2021 rules are really only for office and other outpatient services. So yes, I, I find that I'm looking at the opposing side a lot of times and I'm like, do you, did you even read the rules? I mean, seriously. Yeah, that's a great point. So these, these, this trial, as I said, dates back to 2018. The one prior to this was um, dating back to like 2013, 2014 in that area. Um, and again, folks, remember, in a civil case, there's a six-year look-back period. In a criminal case, I believe it's um, uh, up they could go 10 years. Uh, a lot of them go five years unless they get a tolling agreement. But uh, I'm sure if there's an attorney listening to this and if I've misstated on the criminal side, you know, feel free to uh, let me know. But I, I, I believe that's what it is. So let me, let me, also, short, let me also interrupt real quick. Please. Sean, isn't there something as far as, because I know Medicare puts this out, um, if it's not considered, and I'm air quoting fraud or the fraud, waste, abuse, if it's considered maybe incorrect or something that's that's being um, not targeted, but basically on the radar, that's four years, right? Mm -hmm. Until they really believe that it's a fraudulent act, it, the, it's really a four-year look back. Is that correct? Yeah, most of them go back. Yeah, most of them go back okay. four years, but um, because it's a civil matter, right? So it, a civil matter could mean that it it, it doesn't require you know, a prosecution. It's it's a civil matter where it results Money. in a recoupment or a refund or, yeah. you know, restitution, something of the right, something of okay. that nature. Um, a lot of them do four years, but they can statutorily go back six years. But here's the thing, right? So I want to start with the evaluation of management services because prior to 2021, when an auditor was looking at these services, they needed to look at them based on either a new or established patient. And I'm talking about the office setting, right? Put inpatient stuff aside for a minute. They needed to look at them as a new patient or an established patient. And as a new patient, you had to have three of the three key components, right? History, exam, medical decision-making in order to substantiate a level of service, whether it was a level two, or level five new patient visit. For a established patient visit, level two through level five, we had to have two of the three key components. And it didn't matter whether it's history and exam, 
exam in medical decision-making, history in medical decision-making, as long as we had two of the three. Are we on the same page so far? Um, 99%, yes. Okay. <laughs> There's Can't a 1% in there that... Is. Well, the 1% in there is that there is a... Yeah. And I don't want to call it a fallacy, but it it is something that coders deal with, and that is, should medical decision-making be one of those two? So that's when people don't seem to realize that medical decision-making and medical necessity are two different things. So would it be a perfect world if medical decision-making was one of those two? Yes, that would be awesome. But you establish medical necessity with the intake, with the history, with what the patient is there for, you know, the presenting problem. So and that's why, again, transferring to the newest rules, people are read the information wrong where they say, well, we don't have to do a history and physical anymore. I'm like, no, no, no. You still have to have a problem pertinent history and physical. We just don't count bullets anymore on the new rules. On the old rules, that's right. Medical decision making basically said you're you're basically using that as a way to say, I'm doing this because of this. So that's kind of your proof that you're going in the right direction. But until you can establish why you're going in that direction, you have to have that medical necessity. And that's the overarching criteria for any rules. But that's just what I wanted to clear up because I think people miss that sometimes because um, in the legal work that I've been in, so many doctors have had their money taken back because when they, um, the two out of three, especially on the established, uh, the person that's trying to take the money back, the payer, they're saying, well, you only had the history in the exam. You didn't have medical decision-making. I'm like, but it doesn't say you have to have that as your third one. Do I like to see that? Absolutely. But is is that the legal position? No. Good. So, yeah, because I just dealt with this, right? So let's let's kind of separate AMA and CMS. Because even though they they created these guidelines as a collaboration, there is some inherent differences, right? So if you look at the pure AMA guidelines, doesn't matter, two of the three, it could be any combination of them. Medical decision-making, there is nothing in the guidance from the AMA and the CPT book, right? That says medical decision-making has to be one of the two key components. It's Correct. It's two of three. That's a best practice, by the way, that we we say it should be because that kind of explains your whole encounter. But, um, you know, technically, that's that's not a legal requirement. Right. That's right. Now, for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, it also says two of the three. But you used a key term, overarching. OK, so if we want to talk about evaluation and management services and how we determine whether or not a level of service was substantiated based on CMS guidance, right? <clears throat> we have to look at um, section 30.6.1. Right. And it says, evaluation and management services, medical necessity shall serve as the overarching criteria in addition to the individual elements of the procedure or service. So, um, well, procedure's probably not in there. I'm going from memory. So it's of, of, of the service rendered. So again, there's nothing in there that stipulates medical decision-making has to be one of the two, but medical necessity is, there's five intensities of medical necessity. 
and medical necessity is what establishes the intensity of the visit. Thus, if you have history and exam or any of the two of the three key components, right? And they justify a 99214. But if you look at the medical necessity, the intensity of the medical necessity, and it is low in nature, then you should be billing a 99213, not a 99214. That's right. really how it's looked at from a statutory purpose. And it's, it's mind-boggling when you think about that. But <clears throat> for me, as long as I've taught evaluation and management services, I've even taught auditing of evaluation and management services to agents, to investigators. I've taught it to auditors at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. I always tell them that when you're talking about established patients, medical decision-making really needs to be one of those two because that's, that's the, the, the meat of the visit, right? The assessment and plan. But medical necessity has to be the driver of those services. Would you agree with me on that, Terry? I would agree. Absolutely. And I think where we get a little skewed is when they created electronic medical records and templates that oh, yeah. can contain, bring in information that isn't current. And so, you know, visit to visit, you're seeing the exact same information brought forward. Yep. And obviously that's a clone note situation, but it, it basically, you can lose your credibility without that information being updated. I've even seen brought forward notes that have the same typos in them, uh, typos that change the sex of the patient. So the patient's Sally Smith and they're now, you know, he instead of she in the next um, record. And just not updating the patient's Coumadin, not updating the patient's weight. There was one patient that had gained over 80 pounds in a time period of three years and not according to the medical record. So it was, you know, it was frightening that they didn't actually catch that. Patient stayed yeah. at 128 pounds and the patient was over 200 by the time they caught it. And this patient had, you know, hypertension, diabetes, things like that. But also wanted to just kind of a sidebar comment since uh, we're talking some legal things. Um, one thing that, that I run into, and I don't know if you run into this as an expert witness. One thing that you've got to, you have to be careful of because a lot of us, and I'm an auditor, so I audit for payers and for um, private practices and physicians, is make sure that if you are using audit tools, if you're using anything like that to help you audit, First of all, make sure it comes from an authoritative source. Next, make sure that you don't call it a cheat sheet. Who are you trying to cheat? I was in a, a deposition <laughs> for nine hours one time, and any reference tools, that's what I call them, reference tools that I give to my clients who are trying to do some internal auditing, um, that's, that's basically how I refer to them. And this one attorney said, handed me a, a reference tool of mine and said, is this a cheat sheet you gave this office? And I said, no, that's a reference tool. That's a reference tool that I give. He's like, so in this cheat sheet, I said, rephrase. And the judge, just like you said to me, you know, offline that, you know, they were, they said to the, um, the opposing counsel, he said, do not put words in the witness's mouth. She's called, she, it's even labeled a reference tool for E&M. Yeah. And yeah. Um, he said, well, the, the office calls it a cheat sheet. And I said, I don't have any, um, I'm an outside consultant, so I don't have um, any authority on what they call things. All I know is how I 
dispense them and how I label them. And that is a reference tool to make things a little easier. And he would not stop. He called it a cheat sheet like 30 times because he wanted it on record. And so well, I juries like, pick up huh. on that stuff. They do. So they judges. do. And finally, I saw a couple of jurors that were rolling their eyes saying again, you know, so finally afterward, he was kept calling me, kept calling it that. And I stopped talking and he's like, you need to answer the question. I said, if you keep referring to something that isn't mine, I said, who are you trying to cheat by saying this? I go, I'm not, I don't know what you're talking about. Mine's a reference tool. Maybe you have something that I'm not aware of. But just putting that out there because it, it gets annoying. Well, I will tell you, because you brought up EMRs. EMRs were a very large topic of the cross-examination that I was subjected to last week in the trial. Well, Sean, um, weren't EMRs originally created because we couldn't read the writing of the doctors? That was the whole point of an EMR. To well, help with yeah, legibility. I mean, <laughs> it, it, yeah, it, I mean, yes. It was, but if you go back to the real reason why EMRs were created, it was created as part of ACA, right? The Affordable Care Act under the Obama administration, which is really interesting because there's an interview, a video interview of former President Obama, who was asked, What is your what are, what are your biggest regrets in healthcare? Because your crowning achievement of your administration was ACA. But he got into a discussion about electronic medical records and how he did not realize that the medical community at the time when he was imposing his will on our industry, that we were not ready for electronic, electronic medical records. His exact terms were, it was a painful trudge. and. Had I known what the expense was going to be, the problems it was going to create, I, I, I would not have gone down that path. And there's, it's a tremendous interview that he gave. And we actually talked about that case. Um, Ron Chapman, who was the, um, <clears throat> one of the uh, defendant's uh, uh, attorneys in the case up in Detroit last week, actually asked me to opine on that, that video from um, the Obama administration, well, after his, his term in 2017. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, anyways, I, I, so EMRs were a huge topic of cross-examination um, about, you know, the ease in which providers can inflate notes. And, of course, I'm not going to say, no, you're wrong. The prosecutor was right. Of course you can. When, when EMRs are, are, are put out there for physicians, they are typically set as a default to negative, and it's up to the provider to move things, to click, you know, their boxes for positive pertinence, and, <clears throat> and, and then it just populates, it auto-populates, and this was a big problem if you go back and you take a look with practice fusion software um, back around 2015, 2016, there was a big problem, they actually um, admitted to it. I think Practice Fusion actually settled some claims with the government. I, I, I may be wrong. I seem to remember that. But anyways, so here's, here's where I wanted to go with evaluation and management services. Prior to 2021, time. Time was only looked at 
in the event you had greater than 50% of the total face-to-face time engaged in counseling and or coordination of care between the patient and the provider, i.e. physician, NP, PA. Staff time had nothing to do with it. So as an example, if I had a 99214 that was being billed, you would typically have 25 minutes of time minimum, of which at least 50% of that time, I always said greater than 50%. I think the actual rule says equal to or greater than. So it would be 12 and a half minutes, but I go 13 minutes, right? Just to be safe. Right. Be safe. So the prosecutor in this case <clears throat> relied on an OIG agent who was fresh out of the academy, four weeks. And this individual made a determination that because there was no time documented in each of the patient cases that they looked at, that the level four service that was billed was not supported, even though there was a detailed history, detailed examination, and medical decision-making of moderate complexity. And the prosecutor argued with me and said, but Mr. Weiss, the guidelines say it's 25 minutes. And I said, that's not what the guidelines say. Let's pull up the AMA and the CPT guidelines, and let's pull up CMS guidelines from 95 and or 97, and let's find the section where you're telling me it is two of the three key components in addition to time. You won't find it, sir. It doesn't exist. And he said, but Mr. Weiss, wouldn't you, wouldn't you say that a patient should expect to spend at least 25 minutes in the room with a physician if they're going to be billed a 99214? And I said, absolutely not. 99.9% of patients out there don't have a coding and billing background. They wouldn't know how long a physician's supposed to spend with them. He said, well, how long in your, and I'm air quoting, expert opinion, do you think it should take a physician to perform a detailed history, detailed examination, and come up with a level of complexity that's moderate? And I said, I've shadowed thousands of thousands of physicians over my 28 years of doing this at the end of this year. I have seen physicians in five minutes or less do a full history and exam and have a level of complexity that was moderate in less than five minutes. And I, I think they were absolutely stunned. And he's like, that's impossible. And I said, why? I said, think about this. An examination, right? An examination could be a visual inspection. I could look at the head and say it's non-cephalic. I could look at the, the trachea and say it's midline. I can observe a patient, you know, for their gait and station. I can shake somebody's hand and know that their skin is warm. And as I shake their hand, I can look at their skin to see whether there's any bruising or open wounds or anything of that nature. I can look for clubbing and cyanosis or pitting. I said, the only portion that requires me to actually put hands on is 
things that require a stethoscope or palpation. But I say when or they if talk I'm doing about a specific time, test. Yeah, when they talk about time and they do that, I've, and I've had that happen to me prior to 2021 rules, I said, yeah, what I'll say is I'll say, well, okay, let me ask you a question. I've said AMA and Medicare are really known for being pretty exact and verbatim when they want you to follow their rules. So why would they put typical time instead of exact time? That doesn't even make sense. Typical time means it's That's probably right. that amount of time. It doesn't mean That's it right. is that amount of time. So they're saying that there's some doctors that could be this. There's some doctors that could be longer, shorter, whatever. And so if you're spending more than 50%, and again, 50% of their typical time, they're not even, they're, they're talking in um, possibilities. They're not talking in exact. Now it gets more exact in 2021 rules, but they still give you a range. They don't say that a, you know, a level four is 30 minutes. They say it's between 30 and 39 minutes. That's and right. for this individual patient, be exact, but prior to 2021, typical time means just that. It means typical. It means right. it's probably this amount, but you figure out what that's it right. is for you. And that's so I, I don't like it when they try to pigeonhole subject matter experts who, believe me, we sleep these rules <laughs> as auditors, right. where they try to basically tell us that it's it's black and white and it you know how gray some of this stuff is in ENM. Absolutely. So yeah, I mean, so to you know, to that point, folks, listen, you've got to conduct audits internally, or if you don't have the resources, get external audits performed. Because the government is going to go after, and they're going to continue to go after these pre-2021 services because it's, it's low-hanging fruit, okay? Number two, they went after incident two. Now, Terry, I, I did I did that um, daily dose. I think it was like fifteen or sixteen minutes or seventeen minutes uh, last week. Thank you so let me, much. Let for me comment on that. that. So, for those of you that that don't understand what incident two is, this is a Medicare rule, and incident two basically means that you can bill out under your provider. Uh, services that a mid-level provider, PA or nurse practitioner, clinical nurse specialist, that they perform while your physician is in clinic and they are performing services that your physician has initiated or started the treatment plan. So basically, they're just carrying out orders, if you will. Sean put out in his daily dose, and just so you know, I'm a person that I will not <laughs> give anyone a compliment. I will not endorse anyone unless I've actually either read or listened to the material of the segment. Sean's the same way. We love each other, but if I think he's full of crap, I'm going to tell him that. <laughs> so, and, he's, and hopefully it's, it's also the respect is vice versa. So sorry for my word. But so I went and actually I thought, you know what? I got some time and I was actually auditing and I listened to Sean's Daily Dose on Incident 2. Best soliloquy on incident two I have heard in years. And I teach this. I teach that. I teach shared visits, all of that. And it was just so to the point. And actually, it's really hard for Sean to do that. Those of you that know him, um, <laughs> it was very much in simple speak. Again, hard for Sean to do. But it was it was seriously <laughs> one of the best, um, just one of the best educational 17 minutes that anyone could listen to. And so I reposted on LinkedIn. We got over 800, you know, hits and liked on that. And I've had several people since then say, okay, the light bulb went off. And they're like, this is, this is great. I go, I told you, you got to listen to it. 
and I'm actually going to reference it in some of my materials. So it was it was very good. So if you're if you're confused about incident two, go listen to it. Well, thank you. I I, I can't tell you how much those words mean to me. And um, yeah. So listen it, it, again. The the prosecution. This is again the second case in a row where the prosecution got it all wrong when it came to how incident two services actually work. There's a couple of things to keep in mind, and I'm not going to go back through. If you really want to understand how Incident 2 services work, go listen to the Daily Dose from last week on Incident 2. Yeah. So a couple of things. Direct supervision. I'm going to keep this real short and sweet. Direct supervision means that the physician has to be – or the non-physician practitioner has to be physically on the premises at the time the services are rendered. doesn't mean that they have to be in the room where the services are being rendered. You just have to be on site. You can't within be in a yelling hospital. distance. Within yelling distance. That's what we call it. Yeah. Yeah. You can't you can't be in the hospital rendering services and have a bridge that connects to your professional office. That's not how it works. It's the same physical location. Number two, if you are part of a group practice or what they call a physician directed clinic, if the treating physician is not in the clinic that day, but there is another physician in the clinic who's a member of that group, they can be the supervising physician, and it still gets billed out under the treating physician as the rendering provider. That's Just a little caveat on that. Make sure work. that doctor is actively yeah. treating patients that day. They can't be there for administrative purposes. That's actually in the rules. So just just know that. Yes. That, that's absolutely correct. But I had the prosecutor say to me, Mr. Weiss, if Dr. So-and-so is at this building five miles away and they had these services taking place at the other building by their ancillary support services or non-physician practitioners, that's not direct supervision, is it? And I said, May I ask a question in return? Because I had already been warned by the judge, Mr. Weiss. These are yes or no questions. Right, right. And I said, I, I can't. And, and I said, I, I said, to the, I said by his name, Mr., you know, Mr. So-and-so, the prosecutor. I said, I can't answer that unless you will allow me to say the following with it. And he goes, okay. And I said, if they are part of a physician group and it's a physician-directed clinic, as it's outlined in Chapter 15 of the Medicare Program Integrity Manual, then yes, I think it's uh, Section 60, um, then yes, you can have any member of that group, as long as they are seeing patients that day in that same location, right. act as a supervising physician, and it's still billable under the treating physician as if they were the rendering. That's just how it works. Under the supervising position, right, the one that's there. That's right. That's right. And, you know, he he started to argue with me, and the other prosecutor that was there kind of walked up and handed him a note, and I think the note said, stop. (laughs) <laughs> because he goes, all right, Stop. Mr. Weiss. You're, in the, you're, you're going down the wrong yeah. path. Stay in your lane. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> and 
I don't you know, think that so, concept is really understood because I think that they think it has to be the patient's provider, not any yeah. provider in the same specialty in the same group practice. Yeah. So I think that's, that's like, where, you know, the, they get skewed because they're saying, well, yeah. the patient's provider wasn't there. They were in surgery. Okay. Well, somebody else in the same practice, same taxonomy, same group practice, same ID um, was there. They're, they're, all sharing a chart and um, then that physician signed off on it or whatever that state requires on signatures, but they did, the supervising physician does take responsibility and it goes out under that supervising physician. So I think they, they miss that sometimes. So yep. they think, well, and, so, and you, and I always ask that I said, you know, it didn't get billed out under the patient's doctor got billed out in the supervising physician in clinic. Right. Yeah, and then they right. just look at you. <laughs> Like stairs. Yeah, and this is this is why I I go back and and I I make this very simple statement and I said it on that daily dose last week, folks. Listen, incident two services are amongst the most complex, if not the most complex billing concept. Okay, OIG struggles with it, prosecutors struggle with it, FBI struggles with it, CMS struggles with it. Did you see that thing, Sean, where they where MedPAC came out and said that um, if they didn't have Incident Two, it would save the Medicare program ninety four million dollars a year? Yes, I I, did I that. know that they keep trying to revisit the fact that they want to take away Incident Two and just have every provider build their own services. Which personally, I wish they would do that. The fifteen percent you get extra is just a headache. <laughs> but um, and, but they and, are and looking I, at the cost I, savings. Yeah, and I tell every single one of my clients, please, just get all of your providers credentialed and bill under their number. That's exactly the, what I the, do. I hate the incident two rule. Yeah. Well, here's something yeah. funny, and I know we don't want to get in too much in this, but maybe at some point we could talk about this in another episode. Incident two with the pandemic under telehealth. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Talk about a, a nightmare waiting to happen. I mean, it reminds Absolutely. me of a, a, a Star Wars, you know, episode where you've got a little, you know, um, R2-D2 running around with an iPad with a doctor's face on it. I'm just like, how is this even possible? And you read the rules and it's not clear. It's not clear at all. They're like, oh, yeah, you can do it just through, you know, electronic communication. I'm like, how do you do that? And it's just through the, it's just during the public health emergency. So I don't want anybody to get yeah. used to anything because it's just during the PHE, but that's for another time. All I'm saying is that, like yep. you said, the complexity here is, it just is so far reaching, but just to kind of move back and finish up what we were talking about on, on E&M auditing. Yep. Remember guys that, and again, listeners, if the OIG is looking at it, you should be looking at it too. So when you see what the, what the news headlines are, when you see what the auditing, you know, take backs are, when you see what the you know, the fraud alerts are, look at it, read it. Don't just read the headline, read how long it was ago because they're still watching. But, you know, Sean said a long time ago in, in one of our episodes, if the OIG is interested in it, so should you be, be proactive. So otherwise it, you're, you, one day you could have somebody knocking on your door and you'll be like, oh shoot, you know? Yeah. I, and, and that someday could be tomorrow because I yeah. will tell you, we have entered into a new era of healthcare, the aggressiveness of the investigatory arms of the federal payer programs, the UPICs, the SMRCs, the Office of Inspector General, the CERTs, they have 
they they have taken things to a new level. At well, Sean, you know what? You know what? SIEs, you know why? Yeah. You know why? And, and and correct me if I'm wrong. I saw something. Oh my gosh, this made my head spin around. I think it was Florida, and this is public record, so I'm not talking out of turn to any client or anything. I it was some physician organization, management organization. It could have been an ACO. Where, oh gosh, what was the name of them? I'm trying to remember what was the report. Anyway, what they did is they told their their um, providers in this network. It was like a network, and they said, "Oh, by the way, go ahead and." Uh, have your patients be seen under telehealth two extra visits a month to make up for any losses during the public health emergency. Remember that report? I don't remember who that was, but I'm like, what? They got in so much trouble for that. Do not tell people to do oh, that. I can only imagine. Oh my gosh. When I read that report, I was just like, you've got to be kidding me. So, well, you know, doctors, back to doctors what are I giving say, some bad advice too. Yeah. It goes back to what I say. Almost, I feel like a broken record. Find your reliable sources, and, th and, and, and that's what you need to rely on. Stay away from these listservs that, that you, you have any Joe Schmo who can post to it. You know, there are some great listservs out there. Don't get me wrong. NSCHBC is a great listserv um, because we have some very strong people that monitor what's being pushed out. And, you know, like Terry <laughs> or, or I, when we're on there, if we see something that we're like, yeah, that's not exactly correct. We <laughs> will post yeah. something in, we do. we do it very, very professionally, very carefully. But anyways, here's the deal. <clears throat> let's, let's just kind of put a bell on this one. Folks, one, you got to get your pre-2021 services, your EM services audited. If you haven't done it, you need to, because don't think just because we've transitioned to a new set of EM guidelines under 2021 that the government's going to be like, oh, we'll just focus on these and everything that's transpired prior to this, we don't really care. No, that's not how it works. They're still going to audit you based on the guidelines. And if your documentation stinks, they're going to go after you. Even if it doesn't stink, stink, not stinks, <laughs> even if it doesn't stink. I get so wound up sometimes. I just make up my own words. You do. Even if it doesn't stink and you've done it correctly, the government may have a misinterpretation of something, as I just talked about in this episode with Terry. Number two, incident two services. If you can stop billing those services completely, do it. Because the 15% equates to basically putting cheese on a Happy Meal at McDonald's. It is just <laughs> not worth the risk it isn't the risk reward just isn't there Again, i tell my doctors that that 15 percent is your is yeah. your uh your, that is your audit um payment so put that 15 yeah. percent aside because they're going to come after it anyway absolutely folks be smart about this stuff if you're rendering services incident to get them audited don't wait for the government to come after you because if you find a mistake under ACA and the 60-day rule, you can issue a voluntary refund. You can do what's called a reopening of a claim for good cause, and you can refund actual damages. If you get investigated by the Office of Inspector General, as an example, because the CMPLs are law, they're tied to the statutes, they are obligated to hit you with a minimum of double damages at a minimum. Okay, if 
OIG audits you and they find a problem and they issue a demand for refund. That is automatically double damages. They could go to treble damages, which is three times the amount unlawfully claimed, or they could even take it any further if they wanted to. Folks, please, I am telling you, I just got done a week ago uh, handling a case with Robert Lyles and Eric Rubenstein with OSIG, which is the Office of Counsel to the Inspector General on a strict liability case. They would not budge off of the double damages unless we were able to show financial hardship. And you have to go and fill out all of these financial disclosure forms. And if you make even the slightest of innocent mistakes, those are under threat of perjury. Yeah, let me let me also explain to you why you want to do this. And this is just a simple one that came up for me where one of the, you remember now the private payers are also getting on the bandwagon too, because a lot of them follow the incident two rules if they say they follow Medicare. Here's one. And this was just like, oh no, this was a physician who came in several times on his day off just to do paperwork. And he, it was, he was blocked out on the schedule as not being in clinic. And so um, a couple of his patients came in and saw the nurse practitioner and it was billed out under that position. Well, guess what? That was audited. And no matter how many times the doctor said, I was there, I was there. Look, I was here. Two things. First of all, he wasn't scheduled to be there and he wasn't seeing patients. And secondly, he wasn't seeing patients. He was there under administrative capacity and there was no real proof that they were there. They even looked for security cameras to see if the physician was there. That same physician, just extending it further, was trying to get paid for prior to 2021, the shared visits that in the hospital where all they had to do was go over and complete the medical decision-making and sign off. And that doctor was doing it by phone and not doing it in a face-to-face and get trying to get paid under, again, under their provider number. It was a mess. It was a nightmare. And $1.8 million in refunds later, because remember, it's not just the refund for what they got paid. You're talking penalties, interest, you know, um, they also sanction them. There's all kinds of fees that go with this. And so it was, it was a mess. And again, to Sean's point, we just strongly urge you because E&M services are just really being looked at right now, not just currently under the PHE, but also under telehealth, but also prior to 2021. And we have a new update coming for hospital E&M um, rules in 2023. Make sure you just put it in a bow, you know, get, get what you can audited. I would recommend that you do 10 to 20 records per provider in your practice. If you don't do that, it's not considered a targeted um, audit. So if you do under 10 per provider, it's not targeted. It's just considered random and it has no credibility. If you do 10 per provider minimum, then you have something to go on as far as what your physicians did. And that's actually comes right from Medicare. That's not my rule. But just make sure that you, you do that. You get peace of mind. You educate and explain to the physicians who didn't pass. And remember, here's a little caveat. Medicare says you have to pass an audit with 90%. Did you know that? I have my providers pass with an 85. And if they don't hit 85, then they basically have to um, then be under audit for everything to get to 90%. So you, you have to make sure that they're passing at that rate and then move on. Now you can move on to 2021 rules, start studying your 2023 rules and be very heads up about it. So that's, that's what I think, Sean. Absolutely. Great advice. All right. That's going to do it for this 
hashtag Terry Tuesday episode on the compliance guy. Again, to my great friend, Terry Fletcher, thank you so much for hanging out with me for a little while and providing, as always, such great information for our listeners. And to each and every single one of y'all tuning in, logging on, and hanging out, we appreciate you so much. Thanks for continuing to support this program. Um, We have some great shows coming up the remainder of this week. We'll keep you posted on LinkedIn about all the upcoming programs this week on The Compliance Guy. And remember, be good to yourself, but more importantly, be good to each other. Until next time, take care. You've been listening to The Compliance Guy. Sean has been doing this for 28 years. He holds 10 national board certifications. He's a partner and the vice president of compliance for Doctors Management, LLC. He's a subject matter expert in federal court. He's lectured at the most prestigious institutions. He's engaged with members of Congress in both chambers. So what we're saying is he's qualified? We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, you can find us on social media at The Compliance Guy. See you next time on The Compliance Guy.